Our scripture for today is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you, that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. On July 2nd, 1863, it was the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, and Confederate troops were launching uh, an attack on the far left flank of the Union Army. It was on a, a boulder-strewn hillside in southern Pennsylvania. And at the far end of that left flank was the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry Regiment. It was led by Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And Chamberlain, in the attempt to stop the Confederate, he had stretched out his men and had gotten to be a, almost a single-file line along this flank. And if you've seen the 1993 movie Gettysburg, uh, Chamberlain's played by Jeff Daniels, who does a great job, has this great main accent. And uh, in the film, before the battle begins, Chamberlain, he addresses the regiment. This is one of my favorite scenes of this movie. And he says this, gentlemen... The 83rd Pennsylvania, 44th New York, and 16th Michigan will be moving to our right. But if you look to the left, you will see that no one is there. It's because we are the end of the line. The Union Army stops here. We are the flank. You understand, gentlemen? We cannot retreat. We cannot withdraw. We're going to have to be stubborn today. And so for 90 minutes... The Confederates and the rebels, they, they move up this hillside in these attacks, these wave of attacks that the 20th Maine is able to hold. But now at, at the end, they've sustained heavy losses and they're running out of ammunition. And Chamberlain makes this dramatic call, fix bayonets. He then proceeds to lead them in this dramatic downhill bayonet charge, one of the most famous counterattacks in the Civil War. And the 20th Maine is able to hold the line to successfully push back the Confederate assault. This was credited with, in many ways, helping to win the Battle of, Battle of Gettysburg, which in turn helped them to win the war. We're in a series in this letter of the Philippians, and up until this point, we've been mostly focused on Paul's circumstances. But now, starting in verse 29, there's a shift. We're going to shift to looking at the circumstances of the Philippians. And when Paul does this, when he looks at this community, in Philippi, he sees a community under siege. He sees, a, he sees attacks from the outside coming at this community, and he sees problems from within the community. Next week, we'll look at some of the internal challenges this community has faced. But today, we look at what is coming at the Philippians from the outside. And it's almost, I see Paul, uh, he's using all this battle language. 
it's not apparent on the first reading, but as you look at it and you look at the text, he's using all these battle words, stand firm, strive together as one, don't be frightened. In other words, hold the line. Paul's like this, this, this lieutenant that's going up and down the line of the community in Philippi, Philippi and saying, stand strong. In the face of suffering, in the face of opposition, don't back down, hold the line. And his first instruction to this community under siege is this. If you, if you open your Bible, this is the first verse, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a man, manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is the NIV translation. I like the NIV translation usually. This one, I think we're missing some key things in this verse. So uh, some of the translations, ESV, NRSV, begin it with only, because that's more of a literal translation. Meaning only, just this one thing I want you to know. Amidst your struggle against this, uh, this siege that's coming at you, you have to remember this one thing. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But again, we're missing something here because Paul is more literally saying, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ron, can you put up the first slide? I think the best translation out there is, is the New Living Translation. I know there's some members in our congregation that like this translation. So this is the translation. You're going to see there's differences here. Above all, you know, they, whatever happens only, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So it's something different, citizens of heaven. And that's closer to what Paul is saying here. He's appealing to their citizenship. He's saying, you've got to remember, you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And he's running up and down this line, beseeching them, exhorting them, saying, don't forget this one thing. You are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. In other words, your ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. And I'm pleading with you, hold firm, hold the line. Do not forget this. Do not forget to live in a way that's worthy of that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we, we, we did some background work a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Paul is writing to Philippi. He's writing to a Roman colony. Uh, again, remember, a Roman colony, it's not on Italian soil, but it would have all the status of a city that would be on Italian soil. Uh, many of these descendants in Philippi are, are Roman soldiers. The official language of Philippi is Latin. Uh, people wore Roman dress. People were proud to be part of Rome. They were proud to be a Roman colony. And surely there was expectations about what, what it meant to live up to that status as a Roman citizen, as a Roman colony. There are certain expectations of how you are to live. So when I, when I first started traveling to, to Europe extensively, when I was in college, I noticed that almost every Canadian had a Canadian patch on their backpack. And I thought, well, why do, why do Canadians? Well, they talk like us, pretty similar to us. And, and you find out maybe not all of them, but most of them are doing that because they want to make sure people know they're not Americans. And, and it made me want, I want to live in a way that reflects well on my country. Now, maybe we don't always do that while we're traveling abroad, but it made me want to think, okay, I, I want to live well. I want to live well that's worthy of my American citizenships. The way we act reflects on our homeland. And Paul wants the Philippians to act in a way that, that honors their citizenship in their homeland, the kingdom of God. He wants to remind them that their ultimate loyalty is not to Rome or to Caesar, but to Jesus and his kingdom. And he's not, Paul's not calling the citizens of Philippi 
to go on attack against the Roman Empire. He's not calling them to be bad citizens. But, but Paul realizes something I think is that we should realize too. But living in Philippi, living in this Roman colony, inevitably it's going to set up clashes between these two citizenships. And inevitably at some point, being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and a citizen of Philippi is going to create a clash. And Paul knows this. He, knows, he experiences firsthand in the book of Acts. If, if you remember, we talked briefly about this. Paul, when he starts this church in Acts 16, he goes to this town. He begins to preach the gospel. He does it in word, but he also does it in deed. And we find out it offends the, the people in Philippi, and, and they take him to court. And they say this, that, that, that Paul and Silas are advocating for customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. Right? They're not doing what a good... Philippian citizen would be doing. So I want you to notice, Paul didn't set out to clash with Roman you know, customs. That wasn't his main goal, to offend these people. But by preaching the gospel and living out the gospel, he offended the people in Philippi, and he and Silas ended up getting thrown into jail. And so now Paul is saying to the Philippians, who are now facing their own struggle, their own opposition, remember, first and foremost, you are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. You have got to carry yourself in a manner worthy of that citizenship, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Almost all of us are citizens of the United States. And there are, I just want to say, so many good things about that citizenship. But, we, but, our, but our citizenship, primarily as followers of Jesus, our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And I just want to say, trying to navigate these two citizenships is not easy. It's not straightforward. So yesterday, uh, yesterday was the anniversary of the 20th anniversary of the attacks of 9/11, and I've, I just found myself this week, in the couple of weeks leading up to this, really investing time in trying to learn again what happened that day, because it was such a formative experience for so many of our lives who remember it. It shaped our culture, our our, our country. Our country is still. Is, is very different because of this. And so I found myself wanting to understand what happened on that day uh, better. And I was part of what I was so deeply moved by the sacrifice, so, many of the, so much of the sacrifice made on that day, by the uh, NYPD, by the firefighters, by the EMTs, by just regular citizens who came in and put their lives on the line, clearing buildings and going into the rubble and, and looking for survivors. And many of them died doing this. If you remember, after 9-11, our country came together in a way that was different than anything I'd experienced before that in my life, and certainly anything I've experienced after that. People were genuinely desperate to figure out what they could do for their country. This was good. I think what, some of what brought, was brought up out after 9-11 was America at its best. But the day also unleashed a lot of darkness. There was the darkness of 3,000 Americans now dead. And that was just the beginning of the death toll. Uh, Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs puts the human toll of post-9-11 military operations at close to 900,000, including armed forces on all sides of conflicts, civilians, journalists, and humanitarian workers. 900,000. In the days and the weeks after 9-11, there was a deluge of anti-Muslim hate and Islamophobia in our country. In the, days, in, the, in the years after 9-11, there was the CIA torture program. We as followers of Jesus who share this citizenship in the kingdom of heaven but are also American citizens, 
citizens. We witnessed so much that was so good about our country. And we had to witness so much which looked nothing like the kingdom of heaven or our Lord Jesus. And it's hard to figure out how do we navigate that as faithful, as first and foremost with allegiance to God and to Jesus. That's hard in our own hometowns. Right? I just, this was, street, uh, this was a street festival in Columbiana, and there's a parade on the first evening, and there's all kinds of things mixed together. There's military vehicles, and there's uh, church bands singing songs about Jesus, and then there's politics coming through, and then there's you know, one thing after another, it's just this big mixing bowl. And as a citizen of Columbiana, I've got to figure out, how do, I, how do I be a good citizen of Columbiana, but most importantly, a, a faithful citizen of the kingdom of heaven? That's not easy to do. It's not easy to hold your convictions. It's not easy to hold the line uh, when those convictions as Jesus become attacked. It can be scary. Paul uses this word frightened. He says, don't get frightened. Don't be afraid. And he says that because he knows it, it's going to be easy to be afraid. He, he uses this word that's used for um, uh, describing a herd of stampeding horses. that they, they get wild and they get out of control. And Paul's saying, don't be like that. Don't be afraid. Because he understands that what they're experiencing is challenging. Those of us, we are in the Anabaptist tradition, and we have a long history of people in our tradition who have recognized the conflict between citizenship in our country and the values of the kingdom of God. And they, many of them in the past paid for that. And we don't face that today, but we face situations where there's a clash in value of the kingdom. And we need, with discernment, with humility, with courage, and with our brothers and sisters, because we can't do this alone, to help us figure out how to stand firm on those convictions of the kingdom of heaven. How do we hold the line? How do we remind ourselves our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, secondly, so Paul, Paul's first thing Paul does, you've got to remember your citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven. But then he also begins to talk about suffering. We don't know exactly who's opposing the church in Philippi. We don't know exactly what they're suffering from, but we know there's opposition. We know there's suffering because he writes this. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Again, we don't know exactly what this suffering would have been. It could have been that they lost their jobs because of their faith in Jesus. It could have been some of the business men and women in the congregation lost out on opportunities because of their faith in Jesus. It might have been involved the suffering that, that Paul endured. He, they might have actually been dragged in front of the magistrates um, because they refused to participate in the festivals or the, or the honor, stuff that honored the Roman Empire. We're not sure. But Paul senses that that suffering could break the line. That if they endure this suffering and they don't have resources to draw upon, that that could break the line. And so he says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. In some ways, these are kind of odd words to console people who are suffering. This word granted is kind of like the sense of a gift. Like, you've been granted the favor of suffering. Like you're, you're not only have you been granted the gift of believing in Jesus, but you've been granted the gift of suffering for Jesus. Anyone ever been given a gift which doesn't really seem like a gift? Someone gives you, I, I've had this happen, I'm sure you all have. 
Someone gives you something and they call it a gift, and the whole time you're thinking, this is not a gift. This is more of a problem than a gift. This is creating new problems in my life that were not here before this gift. That's kind of what it sounds like Paul is saying. Like, hey, aren't you, isn't this great? You get this gift of suffering. How can Paul say this? Why is this a gift? Well, there's a lot to say, but I'm going to just point out one thing here. One of the gifts of suffering is it has a clarifying effect. It opens our eyes to, to see things more clearly. Suffering enables us to see better what we actually believe. Not, not just what we say we believe, but what we actually believe. And secondly, it, it helps us clarify what actually matters in our lives. Oftentimes, I don't even know that we're sure what exactly matters in our life. But when suffering hits, there, hits there's this clarifying effect that it boils things down to what is most important in my life. Part of the reason for that is because suffering often tends to bring us face-to-face with our mortality. I think we see this to some degree with this current pandemic. Like there's lots of obviously awful things that have happened from this pandemic, but if you notice for a lot of people uh, in our country, at least I can speak to, this has been very clarifying for them because they maybe for the first time in their lives, and I, I can say this myself, have faced their mortality. I think all of us would say, of course we're going to die, but there's something different to saying, no, I'm going to die sooner than I think. Hopefully not today, hopefully not tomorrow, but it's not that far away. And this, this facing your mortality forces you to ask the question, what actually matters in my life? And for a lot of people, this has led to some big changes in their lives. A lot of people have said, you know, I, I worked a job before that I hated, and I quit that in the pandemic, and I'm not going back to that. Life is too short for me to work a job I hate. Or maybe I was working 60 and 70 hours before the pandemic. I can't do that. I'm not doing that anymore. You know, the housing market has exploded. Part of the reason for that is because people are moving. When we were out in Colorado, there was flocks of people that were moving to Colorado. People, it seems like people are always moving to Colorado, but in the pandemic, it seemed like everyone was moving to Colorado. They had come to the realization, like, life's too short maybe to not live in a pretty place. I don't know all the reasons. But they were moving to Colorado. A lot of people have refocused attention on their families and their kids. Suffering and facing one's mortality pushes us to ask the big questions. What do I actually believe and what actually matters to me? Not what I say, but what actually matters to me. Okay, so, so what is the gift here to the Philippians? Paul is saying, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe in the gospel. I'm part of Jesus' kingdom when it costs you nothing. And it's a completely different thing when that confession, when living out that confession becomes costly. Because now these, this, these, um, this church in Philippi, they're getting pounded. They're getting pounded. They're, they're getting hit with wave after wave of suffering and opposition, and it's threatening to knock them over. And Paul says, hold the line, stand firm. I know this isn't easy, trust me, I know. But you're going to emerge from this with a sign that you will be saved. That's what he says in verse 28. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. What is, does Paul mean that they are saved through their suffering? No, we are saved through Jesus and trust in Jesus but once you've been pounded by the waves of suffering or opposition and you hold on to that faith, you know it's the real thing. Like when the challenges hit you, when you're threatened, 
when your faith is threatened and you hold on to allegiance to King Jesus, that's a gift because it clarifies your mind, this is what I actually believe. I'm not just like following Jesus because it makes my life more comfortable. I'm not just following Jesus because that's what my parents did and my grandparents did. I'm not just at Midway Mennonite because I've been here my whole life. No, I've had this clarifying effect where this is what I actually believe. And Paul says that's a gift. So last thing here. Paul reminds them, where's your allegiance? Suffering can be a gift. And three, know your weapon. Paul, clear, Paul uh, he's rallying this community in Philippi to stand for, to firm the attacks. And one of the ways he does it is to remind them that they are not defenseless. Like the, the 20th Maine holding that line on the rocky hill of Pennsylvania, they might be battered, they might be under threat, and they might be, feel like that line's about to collapse. But Paul's saying, you're not defenseless. What do they have? Does, does Paul have some special counterattack surprise up his sleeve? Does he, does he want to call them to some audacious downhill bayonet charge? Look at, look at verse 29 again, uh, 27. Would you put that slide up, Ron? I think this is a really subtle thing, but I think this is like key to our passage. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. Karl Barth on this passage says, Christians do not strive against anybody, but for the faith. Because here's what I would expect Paul to say. Stand firm in one spirit, striving together against your enemies. That's the narrative typically, right? When you are attacked, you stand, you hold your ground, and if need be, you attack. You go against your enemies. But that's not what Paul says. He says, stand together as one for the faith of the gospel. I think often the message we get in our country is that when we feel like we're up against the wall as Christians, when we're, whether it's accurate or not, whether we're being attacked or whatever, we use whatever levers of power are available to us to strike back at the enemy and defend our rights. That has been the narrative. As long as I've, since I've been, last 30 years, that has been the narrative of most Christians in our country. When we're up against a wall, we use whatever power we have to strike back. Sometimes we even use the language of war in, in, in the culture wars, right? There's this battle language. But I want you to notice, what is Paul's instruction to Christians that are under siege? He doesn't rally them around a common enemy. He doesn't say, hey, you need to unite and crush your enemies. He doesn't call for a counteroffensive. No, he, he exhorts them to stand firm amidst the suffering and opposition and rally around the gospel. That's the rallying cry. That's the rallying, that's the flag, the gospel. Paul reckoned, Paul, Paul's not naive. Paul knows that there are people that oppose the faith and they're creating serious problems. Paul is not in denial about that. He's not naive. Paul believes that destruction will come to them, but not at the hands of the Philippians. But that of God, right? Paul says that they will be destroyed, but it will not be at the hands of the Philippians. It will be that of God. Verse 28, let's look at this verse again. Can you do the next slide, Ron? This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. As followers of Jesus, we profess and trust that we serve a God of love and a God of justice. And because of that, we leave retaliation into the hands of God. Violence and retaliation might be compatible with certain 
citizenships, but is not compatible with citizenship in the kingdom of God. Our response, what's our response in the face of threats? Threats. What's our response as citizens of the kingdom of God? It's not to go and attack. It's to live in a way that our opponents might be ashamed of their conduct and be won over to the faith. Or as Paul will say in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We cannot define ourselves as Christian primarily as what we are against. We cannot as Christians have a posture of fear like a wounded dog backed into a corner and expect our witness and message to come across as good news. Good news does not emerge out of a fearful posture, but a hopeful posture. Our struggle is not against something. Our struggle is for something, for the faith of the gospel. And our call as citizens of the kingdom of God amidst our struggles and our opposition is to conduct ourselves worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our call is to conduct ourselves in a way that, that those who oppose us might be so moved that they would consider coming and joining with us and giving their allegiance to King Jesus. Like, What if this week, and I'm saying this first and foremost to myself, what if this week before I posted something on social media, before I interacted with my colleague or my neighbor or my family, what if I, what if I asked myself, is what I'm about to say worthy of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? Like, what might that change? If I kind of ask myself, is what I'm about to say or do reflect well on the kingdom of heaven and most importantly, our Lord Jesus? As we'll get to here in just two weeks, does it reflect the person who, though he was in the very nature of God, made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a slave, the one who dies for his enemies? Jesus not only gives us that model, he gives us hope. Whatever battle is coming at us, whatever opposition is coming at us, we know the war has been won. The war was won through the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, the battles continue, but Christ's victory is sure. Pray with me. God, I pray that we as a congregation and we as individuals would be people for the gospel. That we would rally around that gospel the way Paul is exhorting the church in Philippi. That we would be for the faith and that that witness would, would bring those who are opposed to your gospel over to the other side. That they too would be so moved by the witness that they would want to pledge their allegiance to King Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, humility and also courage to decide when, when do we need to act a certain way that goes against our citizenship here on earth, but is in line with our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Give us courage, Lord. It's not easy to do that. We need courage. We need discernment. We need you to help us. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.